If you are able, please stand now for the reading of God's Word, which comes today from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Lord says, I have loved you, Israel. The people of God on earth, I have loved you. And they respond, how? How have you loved us, God? Malachi is an interesting book uh, written in an interesting time in the history of the people of God. Not long ago, they were in captivity being ruled by another people. Their temple had been destroyed and teared down. Horrible things had been done to them by the Babylonians and the Persians, but God had not forgotten his promises. He has not forgotten his promises to Israel, to Jacob. And somehow this tiny little nation with a tiny little amount of people smaller than the size of New Jersey ended up back in the land that God had promised. Somehow they had made their way and they had a temple again and the walls were rebuilt and God dwelt with his people once more. But to Israel, it all felt like less, right? The temple was small compared to the old one um, and it wasn't as lavish and as great. Politically, they had almost no power. They were pawns. They had no king. They were vulnerable. They were weak. Economically, they were poor and there was suffering everywhere and there wasn't much blessing in the land amongst the people. And spiritually, everything felt bland. God seemed far off. The priests were corrupt, and the temple was small, and God's law seemed unimportant, and the priests were actually celebrating. God's presence, his love, his favor felt very, very far away. And I think all of us can relate in some ways to feeling these things. But this has all led to something very familiar amongst us human beings, and that is compromise. Compromised and a sort of God's not really there. Uh, he doesn't really care about us attitude amongst the people of God. Who cares how we live or, or what God's law commands? He doesn't really care about us. I mean, look at us. Who cares about the priests? Who cares about our worship and how we do it? It's not like the Lord is involved. Who cares about what we do with our money and how we spend it? God might not be that great after all. I mean, look at our temple. Look at how our enemies prosper around us. Maybe God really doesn't love us. They ask, how have you loved us, Lord? When Israel doubted God's love, his goodness, and favor, they began to compromise on every level. And just like them, we can do and tend to do the same. In our, in our book, they were marrying non-believers and divorcing for unbiblical reasons. The priests were condoning and celebrating ungodly living and ungodly worship and were doing the same amongst themselves. The people were unthankful and ungenerous with their money, and sin was rampant. And into this world, God sends a prophet. And he sends a prophet with an oracle, with an urgent message to the people of God. 
And the first words are, I have loved you. But it's not just then, I still love you. I do love you. And they ask, how have you loved us? And it's into this first argument, this first moment when God begins to reason with his people that we will study and spend our time today. And we're going to look at two things. The first is this, that, that God judges the wicked, that God judges his enemies. And the second thing being that God shows his mercy to those whom he loves. And so those are where we're going to spend our time today. So the first thing he says, it doesn't actually say it in order, but the first thing we're going to talk about from our text is that God essentially says that I am the judge of the nations. I'm the judge of Edom. I'm the judge of the wicked nations, and I will defeat Israel's enemies. Look with me again. I'm going to read very quickly verses 2 through 5. It says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. You shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, one of the things that Israel is concerned about in this book is something that they've been concerned about their entire history and things that we're still concerned about this day. And that is the question of why does the ungodly seem to prosper? Why is it that the evil, why is it that evil seems to win? Why is it that we're, we're trying to be faithful to God and everything, all the other nations seem to be getting all the blessings? And this bothers us. And what God says here is, I want you to look at the nation of Edom. Edom is the nation that comes from the person Esau. Esau was the twin, uh, the twin son of Isaac and the ever so slightly older brother of Jacob. And the Bible tells us in Genesis that before they were even born, God had said that there are two nations in this womb, two peoples who shall be divided forever. One will be stronger than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. And before they had uttered a word Paul remind, or, and done something that was good or bad, Paul reminds us that, that God had said that the older shall serve the younger, and Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And as the story goes, this really does play out. Jacob, through deception, actually inherits the blessing of God that Isaac was trying to give to Esau. And God blesses them both. They both become nations, and they both become mighty nations. But Esau ends up in service to his, to his younger brother. Esau would become the nation called Edom, and Israel, uh, or Jacob, would become the, the nation Israel. And both would become mighty nations. But throughout their history, the difference is that Edom would repeatedly and endlessly reject God. Edom was constantly in conflict with Israel, and by association, in conflict with God himself. Edom would repeatedly disobey the word of God. Edom would repeatedly betray and attack Israel, uh, push for Israel's destruction, and even attack it. And God then, in Ezekiel, promises to destroy the nation of Edom. And he says it in our passage here again. The kingdom of Eden would be thrown down and judged. And though they planned to rebuild, they would fail because God would bring them down. Because of their wickedness, because of their cruelty, because of their betrayal and their war with God, they would taste his judgment. And God says, Israel shall see this, and they shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. In other words, the destruction of Edom 
And the judgment of the wicked by God would be a sign to Israel that God's promises, that his justice, and even his goodness is true. God is the Lord not only of Israel, but of all the nations. He raises them up. He brings them down. And just because God hadn't judged Edom in that moment, or because Edom had prospered, didn't mean that God's judgments had failed. He would bring it about in his own time. And, in, and when Israel would see it, they would see the greatness of God. He judges the wicked. He brings down the enemies of the Lord. He is just. And this is seen as good news. This is given to Israel as good news. Now, I, I remember watching Lord of the Rings uh, in middle school and in high school. The third one, uh, The Return of the King. And at the time I first watched it, I actually didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in God at all. Uh, and I certainly didn't believe in justice either. I didn't really believe there was a right and wrong. I thought, who decides who, what's right and wrong? And I would always watch the Discovery Channel or the Animal Planet, and I would, you know, learn that, you know, when a lion, a male lion, would fight, you know, some other male lion that was over his pride, the first thing it would do is it would kill all the baby lions. And it did that so that it could, you know, have all the female lions and um, have all its own babies because it's made to pass on its genes. And the TV shows always called it nature, but we evolved from animals, and there is no right and wrong. And so why is it, if I'm just an animal, why do we call it murder? But if another animal does it, we call it nature. And I thought, you know, justice is made up. Justice is a made-up concept. There is no right and wrong. The universe doesn't care about what we do. We are just atoms on a collision course with other atoms. But even though I said that, as I watched Lord of the Rings, I knew I didn't really believe that. And the reason is because there was somebody that I hated in the Lord of the Rings called the Witch King. <laughs> the Witch King of Agmar. The Witch King who was uh, Sauron's right-hand man who did great evil, and he killed so many men and women and children. He murdered the innocents and was a, was a person of great evil. And as I watched the movie, The Return of the King, there's a moment when he begins to fight Eowyn. And Eowyn is a female warrior of Rohan. And he's killed all these characters that I love. And so I'm just like, kill, kill the witch king. Do justice. He needs to go. And as she fights him, the witch king is stabbed from behind by a hobbit. And Eowyn, looking at pure evil itself, takes the sword and stabs the king, the witch king, right in its face. And as that happened, I began to weep. I began to weep, and the reason I wept, and the reason that people in the movie theater started clapping, me, myself included, was because we saw justice. Evil itself was being destroyed. Evils like this shouldn't exist. Justice was being done. The wrongs were being righted, and I cheered as the wicked person and as the orcs <laughs> began to be defeated, I did really believe in justice, and I really did want it. And this is what God promises in our text to Israel. This is what he promises in the judgment of Edom, the judgment of a wicked nation, the ju that justice would be done, that wickedness would be snuffed out like a fire on something beautiful. God's justice and goodness was on trial as the sinners and sin prospered and thrived. And he showed in his justice. And he showed his goodness by bringing his hammer down on the wicked. Now, we don't much like this idea, I don't think. Not in the West, the idea of a God of judgment. But that is almost certainly because we don't really understand our own sin 
nor the sin of this world. We don't really understand how bad it is. Miroslav Volf, who is a biblical scholar who grew up in um, Soviet-era Eastern Europe, uh, writes a lot about God's judgment and how forgiveness and love are completely dependent upon it. He was a man who saw horrible violence growing up uh, in Soviet Union, Europe, and this is what he writes in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence actually requires a belief in divine vengeance and judgment. My thesis will be unpopular with many people in the West, but imagine for a moment that you are speaking to a people, and do imagine this, as you are speaking to a people, as I have, whose cities and villages and homes have first been plundered and then burned and then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped and whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them as you speak to them is this. You should not retaliate. You shouldn't do anything. You should just love them. They reply, why? Why would I ever do this? He says, what will ever keep us from retaliating? What will keep us from, from exacting revenge? I say this, that the only means of prohibiting violence by us is insisting that, the viol that violence and judgment is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today simply nourished by the idea that God refuses to pick up the sword and judge. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of a thesis, ugh, that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent and the cries of the raped, it will invariably die like all other pleasant activities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice or deception or murder and not make a final end to all of that violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Now let me unpack a little bit with what he's saying here. He's saying that a God who doesn't punish sin, who doesn't put an end to torture and deception, who doesn't make an end to all that is wrong in this universe, who doesn't do something about the evil that exists, that God would not be good. He couldn't be. He would not be worthy of our worship, but that is exactly what is going on in the judgment of Edom. And that was why Israel would say and see God is great. His justice is being poured out. But he's also pointing out something else, that so much evil, so much vengeance, so much retaliation, and the infinite spiral of cruelty and sin and death rages on because deep down we don't believe God is really going to do anything about it. Therefore, we take up our own swords. We don't believe God's going to pick up his. And here's the thing that is so fascinating about our own culture, and that is on the one hand, we really do not like the idea of a God of judgment. I wish he would just love, we say, and I have been in that conversation so many times. A real good God, he would just love. And then when things go wrong in their life, they say, where is God? Why does he not judge? <laughs> but here's the point of our text. It's that Israel looks at the world where sin reigns, but it doesn't have to despair. It doesn't have to lose hope because God is good. And he's, because he's good, he's judge. And he promises to Israel that he will make all things right. Israel should not be evil itself, though, because it is the Lord who judges. In other words, we need a God of justice to both move us to the obedience and to not compromise that is happening in Malachi, but it's also the God of justice that moves us to not judge, to turn the other cheek. How do you actually love your enemies? You have to have a God of judgment, a God of justice. 
And we do so, knowing that God in the end will make all things right. Now that doesn't mean I compromise on justice or I look away from sin and evil or I I don't do anything about it. But it does mean that we as the people of God don't have to be a people of judgment. We can be the people of mercy and of grace. And so that's the first thing we see. He promises justice. And that's how they know God loves them. He will make things right. But that's not all he says in our argument. He also says he loves Israel not only because he defeats the wicked and judges its enemies, but he also loves them. And because of this, he gives them mercy. He gives them mercy. Now, this is where the real friction in our text comes. It's, this is where it gets a little bit hard for us because what God is pointing out here is his unconditioned love for Israel, his unconditioned choice of his people and his love for Israel. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, he asks? In other words, they come from the same father. They come from the same family. Paul's point, Paul points out here that neither had been born, neither had done anything good or bad, and yet God says, Israel I love, but Jacob, or sorry, Jacob I love, but Esau I have hated. Other passages God says to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were a mighty nation. I didn't choose you because you were a more numerous nation. I didn't choose you because you were a righteous people. I didn't choose you because you were smart. I didn't choose you for any, I chose you because I loved you. I chose you. I loved you because I love you. I chose you because I made a promise to your forefathers. In other words, why does God love his people? Why does God love us? He loves us because he loves us. And that's good news. That's good news. Why? Because of what if God loved you for the reasons other religions have said? What if God loved you because of your race, which other religions have said? What if God loved you because you were a man, which is what also other religions had said, because men were strong and women were weak? What if God loved you because you were really smart? What if God loved you because you were really, really good? What if God loved you because you were funny? Well, that would be horrible news because what if you aren't that race? What if you aren't born a man? What if you weren't that funny? What if you were good, but you sinned one time? Could you say, could I have a little bit of grace? No. What God points out to Israel is that I have loved you because I love you. And he loves them because he loves them. And his love is unconditioned. His choice is unconditioned. He loves us because he loves us. How do we know? Because he says so. But the second part that he points out here is that Israel is to know that God loves them. He's to see their love and that they have received mercy. And here's where it gets really interesting because we know Jacob and we know Esau's story. Both of them were wicked. Both sinned. In fact, to place the history of Edom and the history of Israel next to each other and you compare their records, they're both sinful nations. They both have failed. They both have done horrible things to their own people and to, their own, and to other nations. They've worshipped other gods. They've disobeyed the Lord. Both have found themselves under God's judgment and wrath via Babylon. And that's what Malachi the prophet is getting at, and he's talking about in Israel. You've strayed. You're a sinful people. And that's the truth. God call, also calls Israel and Jeremiah a wicked nation and a wicked people, the same as he's calling Edom here. Israel also deserves judgment. We also deserve judgment. It's not hell that's unfair. It's heaven that's unfair. It's heaven that makes no sense because it's given to sinful people. Salvation is what's really unfair. We in the West get it wrong. We get it backwards. (laughs) 
But God's love here is this. It's in the promise of a relationship, and that relationship has mercy baked into its foundation. The judgment of Edom will cause Israel to say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel, not only because he's just in judging the wicked and taking away the, the, the Lord's enemies, but at the same time, Israel knows it deserves the same. But its continued existence and continued care under the love of God, despite their wickedness, shows that God is a God of mercy, and he gives mercy to those whom he loves. Psalm 103 says, that God, the merciful one, has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not repaid us according to our iniquities. Why? Because of his steadfast love towards those whom he loves. How do we know God's love us? God loves us? Because he has showed us mercy. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. And Edom's judgment and Israel's salvation was a sign to the world of his love and mercy. In preparing for this sermon, I googled a phrase, and it took me to a blog, uh, which I don't read blogs, but I read this one, and it was, a, of a, it was a blog from a woman who moved from Dallas to New York City, and she's documenting her life change as she moves to the big city to try to become a famous writer. And she's uh, my age, and she's married, and she's trying to become a famous writer in the, in the big city, and she tells this story in her blog. She says this. She says, sometimes, sometimes when I'm feeling really flirty, I will hide behind a section of my hair and bat my eyes at my husband and I'll say, why do you love me? Which, you know, she's like, I'm really embarrassed to admit this out loud, let alone in writing for all you to see. But you know you've done this. Um, You've asked your spouse, why do you love me? And she says that my husband always says the same thing. He always says, I love you because I love you. And she says, it might sound kind of like a cop-out or lame, But it really is the most comforting thing I've ever heard in my entire life. What my husband Daniel means, and she puts in parentheses, by the way, he learned this concept from a sermon at our new church in New York City by a pastor named Tim Keller. What my my husband Daniel means by this is that it would do our relationship no good if his answer was, I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're intelligent. I love you because you're funny. I love hearing those things, and I wish that he would say those things about me, but if those were the reasons that my husband loved me, I would be in a constant state of fear, fear that I would lose those things, fear that I might change. It it means that he would uh, always be assessing his love for me based on those qualities. I would be terrified of age, because what if I look different? I would be terrified of falling pianos, because what if one hit my brain and I wasn't smart anymore? What if on the bad days where I don't feel like telling jokes... But I don't have to be afraid, because he loves me because he loves me. And nor do I have to be afraid of God either, for he loves us because he loves us. And this is why God loves us. It's because he does. It's unconditioned. And it's the best possible news, because we are sinful. <laughs> we fail. We change. And we don't deserve it. But, God, but great is the God's love for his people. Great is the Lord of Israel. Great is the God of Israel. And great is he beyond the borders. The Lord is great to his people because he has shown immeasurable, unintelligible mercy and steadfast love to his people. And as we think about this, we should do just what that word great means, which is marvel. We are to be the people that marvel at the mercy of God. We are to marvel at how much God loves us. Not only does he defeat our enemies, not only does he bring justice to every and goodness to every square inch of this universe, 
He has given us mercy. He has not made us pay for our sins. He has not thrown us into hell, even though that's what we deserve. And it's this truth that we marvel at day and night and day and night and day and night. We are the people of mercy. And as we marvel at the merciful God, we will find ourselves being changed. We must be a people who are transformed by this mercy. Why? Because Jesus tells us so in Matthew 18. He tells a parable of a man who had received infinite mercy, millions of dollars. And the king uh, sees this man who has this incredible debt, and he wipes it away because he has compassion. And immediately after, this man who had been forgiven an infinite debt that he could never pay goes and finds somebody who owes him a few hundred dollars, grabs him by the neck, beats him, and throws him into prison until he would pay his debt. And Jesus says that king hears about it. And he grabs that servant and he says, You wicked servant, I have shown you an infinite mercy. Should you not have showed mercy to your brother for his tiny little debt? And it says that he threw him into his prison until he pay off his infinite debt. And Jesus at the end of this parable says, So God will do to all of us if we do not show mercy to our brothers from the heart. Jesus' point is that the mercy of God is so profound, so unreal, so amazing, that it actually changes us. It melts our hearts and rebuilds them to look like God's. And the way we see this is in our capacity to show mercy. There should be no arrogance amongst us. There should be no hatred in our church. For if we know that we ask God to make people pay for their sins, we know we would also be lost. (laughs) We are the people of mercy. The Lord says in Malachi, I have loved you. And we ask, how have you loved us? I loved you by choosing you. I loved you by setting my, my love upon you. And in that love, he has not done to us according to what our sins deserved. He has given us mercy. And what's fascinating about the book of Malachi is that God goes on to promise that in the end, that there's coming a day where he will send the messenger of the covenant, a messenger who has God's own heart, a messenger who will purify the hearts of his people so that they will do what is good and right and pleasing to the Lord, but they must be refined by him, for they were wicked. But he also promises that a great day of the Lord is coming, a day when all evil, all sin, all death, all of it will be thrown into the fire, and judgment and justice will reign. And the question we ask now, 2,400 years later after this was written, is how do you know that God loves you? How do we know that God loves us, knowing that Malachi is not the end of the story. Well, we know that God loves us because the messenger of the covenant that is promised in Malachi, he did come. He really did come, and he has indeed come and purified our hearts, and he has rescued us in his great mercy. But here's the thing about mercy. It's not that that sin just magically disappears. Where does that sin go? All the things we've done wrong, where is that? Do we we just get mercy and God turns and, and looks away from the sin and wickedness of his people? No, that is not what happens. All sin and the goodness of God requires that all sin be paid. So how is it that we have received mercy? Well, the gospel tells us that the messenger of the covenant was actually God's one and only son and that we have received mercy because Jesus came here and willingly took the hammer blow of God's justice upon himself. He takes the hammer blow of God's justice and he willingly sits under it and receives it for us. As each nail was being driven into his hand and as each moment Jesus endures the white-hot wrath of God, we are being given mercy. 
And it's there at the cross as we see Jesus take the place of sinful man for us that we look to this, as we look to the cross, we marvel. We marvel because we know that's how much God loves me. How much does God love me? It's we look to the cross as he takes the hammer blow of our justice, as he takes the hammer blow of sin and death and hell upon himself to save us. That's how I know God loves me. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever might believe in him would have eternal life. But he did that by taking our death, experiencing hell on our behalf. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in those moments, the mercy, pure and utter mercy, flows to the people of God, for we deserved wrath and death. But Jesus took it all for us. That's how much God loves you. And now we can say to God, just as God said to Abraham, after God gave his son, to be, after Abraham gave his son to be sacrificed, God looked to Abraham and said, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only one, whom you loved from me. But now we, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we look to God and we say, God, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, for us. That is our mercy. We are the people of mercy. That is what we marvel upon endlessly, and it is what the angels long to look at and study and sing praises to God day and night, and we tell the world of this mercy mercy with our mouths wide open in awe that we even have it. This is how we know God loves us. He will make all things right and good, including the salvation of our souls. Though we did not lift a finger, though we do not deserve it, we are the people of mercy. Go and do likewise. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive, that it is active, that it is changing us from the inside out. Lord, we thank you that we have received mercy. And Father, I pray that as we come to this table, the table where we eat and drink and taste the mercy and glory and goodness of our King, Lord, that we would do this in such a worthy manner, that we would be built up and nourished by the truth of your word. We thank you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.